0: Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Well, it's almost hard to believe that we are on the fourth and final week of this series we've been in called Culture Shift. And to wrap this up is a speaker that uh, I think needs little introduction around here. Most of you know um, him, and and those who do know that he has. Um, you can be seated, thanks. <laughs> you know, you were faithful to the end. I, I you know I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> He, is, um, he has an understanding and grasp of the kind of issues that we're dealing with uh, here today. Um, but what you probably don't know is the extent of his abilities. Um, let me share something with you. About 30 years ago, uh, <laughs> he got... Abdu and I were um, riding our bikes uh, to a local uh, store. We bought a couple of pops, and we were riding back and talking, as we often did you know, back then. He, was, he had a command of issues then, and we talk about deep, deep issues. He was riding his 10-speed, as he could do, very few people could do this, no-handedly, with uh, a glass bottle of pop in his hand. He makes this really strong point and looks over to me, and I'm about to tell him how brilliant it was, when he doesn't realize, as he's looking at me, he's not looking in front of him, and the 10-speed goes right into the bumper of a car. He flies over the handlebars, does a full somersault, and comes up, stands up with the glass bottle of pop in hand, not one drop spilled. I think he's related to the Flying Melendez, I don't know, but beyond that, what he has is um, a real grasp of these issues and a heart that goes with it. He is an international speaker, he's a best-selling author, he's a Senior Vice President of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, again, he needs no introduction around here, but let's just say that we love him, he's a great friend of our ministry, Abdu Murray.
1: What Mickey didn't tell you is that when we were doing that, um, we were going to Baskin Robbins actually, and um, there's one on, I think it's still there, on De Quinder and uh, uh, 16 Mile, or Metropolitan Parkway, or whatever you want to call it, depending where you live. And uh, there was, it was like full, it was a summer day, it was packed with people. I hit this bumper, went over this thing, and came up with a bottle of pop. He didn't tell you I had a basketball in my other hand, um, <laughs> which is true too. And the, the people in the Baskin-Robbins all saw it, and they were like, woohoo, they give me that kind of thing. I was like, I couldn't believe it, it was like, I, and I've never gotten an ovation like that since. Um, what a joy and pleasure it is to be here at Rock Point again. It's uh, uh, August's um, sort of highlight. I don't do a lot of speaking during August intentionally. I don't speak very many places. I speak in two places in August every single year now, given my schedule. One is at Summit Ministries, which is a worldview camp for young people. Uh, It's about two weeks long, and um, my kids are all gonna go to it. I speak there every single year, uh, because I really believe in what their ministry is accomplishing there at Summit. Um, But then, uh, and I always bring my, uh, bring bring some of the kids, like Nadia and Lyal, go with me sometimes, and all of us have gone as well, but Nadia is the one who always picks Colorado as her trip that she gets to go with me on. So that's a staple. But I don't go anywhere else except here in August. And it's something that I always appreciate and love that you guys have me back. Um, and I'm always thrilled that I get to come, that the cut that invitation keeps going despite whatever I do on, uh, here. So we'll see if that continues. So we'll, we'll see how this goes. Um, I think it's, um, it's, it's hopefully fitting, but it's actually very daunting that I sort of wrapped this thing up. Um, it's a pleasure and an honor, it really is. I remember thinking to myself, when Mickey and I were scheduling when I'd be, come, be able to come in, uh, would it be the first week, the second week, the third week, whatever weeks it might be, and we picked the last one, and I remember thinking it was a good idea at the time. And then I'm thinking to myself, you had Alan Schleeman, you had Mickey, you had Sam Alberry yesterday, And I have to follow all three of those people. And now I'm thinking that wasn't such a great idea after all. Um, What the heck was I thinking when I did that? But um, so I did want to bring a message that sort of wraps it all up. Because it's been a a very heavy apologetics kind of a week and, uh, or sorry, month. And as we talk about the culture shifts, how do we actually wrap it up where we can go and do something about the shifting culture? How can we do something about it? And I think the first place to start is within our own hearts, within each one of our own hearts, because we think of culture shifting as if the culture is shifting and we're not. And we're just wrong about that. We're just wrong about it. Now to begin, sort of on a lighthearted note, um, what, what we're seeing in the culture shift and what we're seeing with regard to the clashes now, um, it reminds me of a story, you may have heard this story before, it, was, it circulated in the US Navy as true for a long time, I think it's not actually true, but it's a humorous story nonetheless, and it's a story of a flotilla of US naval ships that are crossing the North Atlantic on a very foggy, sort of uh, treacherous night. And as they are, pr- are they're coming across the North Atlantic from the east to the west, as they're coming, they see a light directly in front of them. And the lead ship uh, signals ahead and says, please change your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Well, this sort of very informal rough voice comes back, says, nope, you guys got to move. And the captain's like, I'm not taking that. So we, I say again, this is the commander of the USS Abraham Lincoln. I ask you, I, requ- no, I, I order you to change your course 15 degrees, 1-5 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Please confirm. And the voice comes back and says, nope, not moving, you do it. And the captain's incensed now, and he says, this is the captain of the USS Abraham Lincoln, the second largest ship in the U.S. North Atlantic fleet. I'm accompanied by five destroyers and numerous support vessels. If you do not change your course, 15 degrees, one five degrees to the south to avoid a collision, countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this vessel. Confirm. And the guy says, this is a lighthouse. Your call. <laughs> what I think about about that is that you have this seeming onslaught of the culture and the way it seems to be oppressive, attacking, virulent, um, powerful, silencing, that's coming towards whether it's Christendom as a whole or you as a Christian in specific, and you're thinking, how do we stand up against that? All you are is a little lighthouse. But the, 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 the difference here is that the culture does shift because it's on the unsure foundation. It's just on water no matter how big the guns are on the gunships, no matter how big the boats might be or how heavy the artillery might seem, they're nothing compared to the landmass of North America. And therefore, they would be nothing, culturally speaking, compared to that which is secured to the foundation, which is the rock, which is Jesus himself in the gospel. Now, that might seem like a cause. Now, we do say amen, and I'm glad you said it, but here's the important thing. That might seem like a cause to stand up and say, I defy you. We'll get to that in a minute. Is that really the attitude we ought to have in terms of being planted on a foundation and says, I dare you? Is that the attitude? You see, it used to be the case that the culture would come to the Christian, would come to the church as the first place they would look to for answers, whether it's personal answers or deep existential answers like, you know, just the personal answer like, I mean, my marriage is falling apart and they come to the church. Or... I'm having a hard time understanding how the world can be shifting so crazily right now and how much suffering and evil could be there. Where is God in all this? Or questions that are even more basic. Um, in terms of an academic way, like faith and science, and they'd come to the pastorate, they'd come to the church leaders, they'd come together to each other and get answers. And skeptics, people outside the fold, would think the church is the first place I should go to get answers. Oftentimes now it becomes the last place. Not because the answers aren't there, they are in fact there. It's because the culture has shifted where it thinks the church is the last place you should go for answers. In fact, I would say this, not because they think the church is unintelligent and uninformed, but because they think that the Christian church is the Place where you will get hammered. And it's very, very tough to take. And ask yourself the question: Am I one of those hammers? We have to ask ourselves that. You know, there was a, um, an illustration I think about, I was given in a debate. I didn't come up with this, it's not mine originally, but it was done during a debate years and years ago, maybe a couple of decades ago, there was an atheist and a Christian who were doing a debate. And the question under, under uh, debate was whether or not Christianity is good for the world, whether or not religion in general is good for the world and all this. And so the atheists were taking the position that it's not good, we don't need religion, we can throw off the shackles of religion and have in, enlightenment and in scientific advancement and all this kind of stuff. And so during the crossfire, during the Q&A where the debaters crossfire with one another, the Christian asked this question. He said this, he says, let's suppose... This is before cell phones, so I'm going to make it very cell phone specific, um, because this is important to the uh, illustration. Let's suppose you were traveling into a very, very bad neighborhood of town a very crime-ridden neighborhood of town, and you broke down, your car broke down on the side of the road, or the side of the street, in the downtown area, and you're unfamiliar with your surroundings, and it's very, very dark at night, and you don't know where you are, and your cell phone has died, and your car, because it's died as well, won't charge your cell phone, so you have no ability to contact anybody around you, and you're sitting there panicking, thinking, how am I going to get out of the situation? If I walk out of here, who knows what's going to happen to me? I'm not familiar with the area, I don't know the, the the, the, the rough spots are going to look like a very, very easy target, and so you're very nervous, and you're sitting in your car, and you're wondering what you're going to do, and then as you look down the street, you see four young, well-built men coming outside, just coming out of, a, out of a house, and the light goes off in the house and turns off, and they come out, and they look at you, and they see your car, and they look, and they see your panicked gaze, and one of them nudges the other and points at you, and they begin to walk towards you, and in that panic, you start to freak out, the question the Christian asked the atheist was, would it or would it not matter to you if you knew they were coming from a Bible study? <laughs> the point being, <laughs> that you would suddenly have tons of relief now thinking, oh, it's not, maybe they'll help me. If I were to give that illustration in a debate today, and I do my debates, if I were to give that illustration in a debate today, you know what the atheist uh, opponent would say to me? He says, heck yeah, it would terrify me because what if I was gay? What if I was a Muslim? What if I looked like someone who had a robe on, a, 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 you know, a, a turban on their head? What if I looked like someone who the Christians don't like? He said, heck yeah, it would matter, it would scare me more. That's the shift that's happened now. Is that fair? No, but is that the cultural perception? Yes, and why is that? I don't exactly know except to say this, and this is not an indictment against anyone here or the church in general, because I'm a part of that, by the way. I'm I'm not a fan, by the way. I I know a lot of apologists do this. They come into a place and they'll say, the church isn't doing its job. I don't believe that for a minute. There is no plan B. The body of Christ is the plan A. And so I don't believe that you should come in and start, you know, casting aspersions or chastising the church. We're not perfect, but we are the body of Christ. And if you ever make a I think, a statement that rallies against the church, you are taking on to yourself a very serious responsibility, and you better have your facts straight before you challenge the integrity of the body of Christ. But we do have a responsibility to challenge each other's integrity, and our internal integrity as well, and look in the mirror and ask for ourselves, are we living a life that is worthy of the calling to which we've been called, as the apostle says? And do we offer the truth with an integrity? Are we someone who changes that perception that it would be considered bad if you found out someone was an evangelical Christian? That's the shift now. So we have to look at ourselves and ask ourselves, are we transforming? Do you have the information from Alan Schliemann about how to make abortion unthinkable and do you present it in a way that makes people not only want to think that it's unthinkable, but actually give you a hearing in the first place? Do you take a look at the objections to the morality of the God of the Bible and take all the information that Mick gave and say, how do you actually look at this with an unbiased eye because what they're going to do is look at you and when you try to say the Bible doesn't condone slavery or the Bible doesn't condone misogyny or the Bible doesn't condone genocide, they say, of course you're going to say that. You lie because you're evangelical. You're trying to trick me. Are you the kind of person where they're going to say, you know what, I want to listen to that person on this. And then when someone talks about the most hot-button issues of the day, like sexuality and gender, do they want to hear from you in the first place? It's one thing to get all the information that Sam gave but you have it all in your mind and you even soak it into your heart and you want to give it out to somebody else. But the question becomes this, is anyone listening at all anyway? When you look at First Peter 3.15... And of course, so many people have talked about this. It's an apologetics whole month. I'm sure someone's quoted it at least once during this this month. Uh, if they haven't, then you know what are they doing? Um, it's the apologetics verse, right? First Peter three fifteen, when, P, when the Apostle Peter says, during a time of persecution, by the way, he says, "But set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to always be be ready to provide an answer or a reason or a defense." The Greek word apologia for the hope you have within you to anyone who asks, but do it with gentleness and with respect. You could go on for, on that passage alone for months, picking apart each little phrase, each little part of that passage itself. I want to open up on two of them and just say this, that the integrity with which you speak is the currency for the truth that you give. Because the Apostle Peter says that you provided apologia, you provide a reason for what? For the hope you have to anyone who asks. So the question each one has to ask themselves is this. Do you provide a reason for the hope you have? Because the hope you have is so self-evident that the people around you in shifting times want to know what the heck is with you. Why are you this way? Why are you so hope-filled in a time that tries to drain you of it? Why are you so hope-filled? And then they ask you, because he says to anyone who asks, he presupposes in the very passage, in a time of persecution, that you have such a hope that people want to ask you about it. Are you the kind of person that people want to ask questions of? Are you the kind of person who can give an argument winsomely about abortion? A hot, hot topic, of course, and people want to make it a, um, a combative thing, and they're going to. No matter how nice you are, they're going to. But are you the kind of person that someone can say, you know what, I want to trust you with this conversation? Or when it comes to difficulties in the Bible, or when it comes to sexuality, or when it comes to anything about the credibility of the gospel, are you that kind of person who they want to ask a question of? And it's becoming increasingly hard to be that person, no matter how nice you are, because the culture has shifted in this way that equates evangelical Christianity with evil. That's just the way it is now. Now, is that bad? Of course it's bad in one sense, but in another sense, it's good. In another way, it's actually quite good because you're no longer part of the background noise. Christians are no longer the people that we kind of like, yeah, they're well-meaning, and we ignore it. No one ignores Christians anymore. It used to, it was, when it was in the 80s and the 90s, when it was really easy to be a Christian... You just, no matter what you said, it was kind of like, yeah, okay, yeah, I know that. And I'll just ignore it. There's a, there's, there's a phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. In other words, just being around it and hearing the same old, same old, which never has been the same old, same old, but people think it is because everyone had the label of Christian. They said, well, I'm a Christian. They didn't really mean it. What they meant was, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Jew. I'm not an atheist. I'm not a Hindu. Um, I'm a Christian by default. And you can't be a Christian by default. There's no such thing. But they used to think that, and so Christianity became a background noise altogether. That's no longer the case. The good news is that I think the way that God works out all things for the good of those who love him, including culture shifts, is that you are no longer boring. <laughs> <laughs> that gives you a voice. It gives you a voice, an opportunity for a voice. How will you use the opportunity for your voice? Because this is a truism. Okay, this is a truism that we have to live with and understand very, very deeply. Take, if you take one thing I say from this whole talk away, it's this. It's this. The credibility of the message is always judged by the integrity of the messenger. The credibility of the message is always judged by the integrity of the messenger. Now that doesn't mean that the, that the truth of the message is determined by the credibility of the messenger. That's not true. Think about it. If a liar tells you the truth, it's still true even if he, he's always a liar. But your willingness to listen to the truth of the message is determined by the credibility of the person telling it to you. I mean, Liars tell the truth all the time. That's why they're good at that sometimes, because they lace the truth with lies. But the point is the truth is true even when a liar tells it. But the truth isn't listened to until someone who loves the truth tells it and acts like that kind of a person. So I take a look at the scriptures and I see a statement, but how do we actually reach out to a culture that shifts like this and how do you take these messages and give it some credibility? Because credibility is something that we care about very much in our culture, despite the fact that we are in a post-truth culture, despite the fact that uh, everyone hates everyone else, and we always think if you're on the right, the left tells lies, and the left is always telling lies, Uh, uh, and then if you're on the left, the right's always telling lies, and if you're a centrist, the right and the left are always telling lies. Um, No one trusts anybody anymore, but we do care about integrity, which is weird um, and strange and bizarre, but we do care about it. We care about human Interaction and human value, even when we seem to be denying it, we do care about it. So there's always that hidden kernel, that little nugget you can latch onto. You can look at someone and say, this is something, even though we sharply disagree on a topic, this is something we very much care about. If someone brings up difficulties in the Bible, like does the Bible condone genocide, the question becomes this, why do you think it's wrong for genocide to occur in the first place? And if they're not a Christian or they're an atheist, they'd have a hard time essentially justifying human value outside of God's existence. But you can come to them and say this, is it. this is obviously an issue you care about. It's an issue I care about as well. We might disagree on how to get there, but we do care about the baseline. How do we do that? How do we come together on these kind of things? And it draws right from the scriptures itself. When you look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, it's the golden rule. Everyone in here knows it, at least a version of it. Most people don't quote it very well, but they do quote the one part that everybody remembers. When Jesus says, so in everything, do to others what you would have done to you. That's interesting, the way he says it. In everything, do do everything as Jesus would have. Uh, sorry, he says, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this is, on, on, For on this law hang all the law and the prophets. In everything, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the golden rule, right? We know the golden rule. And people who aren't Christians know the golden rule. Everyone talks about the golden rule. Do unto others and that kind of thing. And so people who've never even cracked the Bible open, who've never heard the gospel before, somehow have heard this phrase. And the reason is, is because there's actually a commonality in lots of other religious systems about this phrase. You see it in other religious systems, you see it in Hinduism, you see it in Islam, you see it in um, Zoroastrianism, you see it in all of these various isms and schisms where they all have a version of the golden rule. But you know what's interesting about it is that when you go to the United Nations, the most popular attraction at the United Nations is a mosaic painted, it's a, it's a mosaic, it's a, it's a stone um, Uh, mosaic based on a painting from Norman Rockwell called The Golden Rule, and in that painting he depicts people of different cultures and religious faiths standing shoulder to shoulder with each other, and etched right into the the mosaic are the words, do unto others as you would have done unto you. So it's called The Golden Rule Mosaic. It's one of the most popular, if not the most popular attraction at the UN building. Well, over time, that, that, that mosaic became cracked, which is poetic all by itself. And they wanted to restore it. And Deputy Secretary General of the UN, Jan Eliasson, at the time that it was restored, he actually, um, at the the, the rededication ceremony, he made this statement about the golden rule. He says, it reflects the very essence of our mission at the UN as it's set out in our charter. At its core, the work is about narrowing the gap between the world as it is and the world that we want. It's about narrowing the gap between the world as it is and the world that we want. So the culture shifts happen and it always creates a gap. How do you narrow that gap? Jan Eliasson is saying at the most popular attraction at the United Nations building, where nations all around the world gather, he's saying this idea of the golden rule where you do unto others as you would do unto yourself is how you narrow the gap. That's fascinating because there was another gift given to the United Nations, which is called the Golden Rule as well. It was a poster, not nearly as expensive or as impressive as a mosaic, but it was a poster that was given from the Interfaith Society, and it has a version of the Golden Rule from all these different religious systems, so from uh, Islam or Hinduism or whatever, and it talks about, um, you know, they, they say something like, don't do to others what you would find injurious to yourself, or uh, don't mete out evil lest evil return to you, or things like if you do good, good will return to you, and all these kind of things, and so it shows a commonality within society about this, the power, the, the of the golden rule, but none of them is quite formulated as the way Jesus says it, when he says, do unto others as you would have do unto you. I'm going to come back to that a little bit later, but it's very important that you remember how Jesus formulates the golden rule in distinction to the way everybody else does, and it forms the basis upon which you can narrow the gap of the culture shift. And it all has to do with this idea of integrity. What is integrity in the first place? When you think about the word integrity, you know, uh, you ever seen that movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, where, where the, 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 the father has this thing, and by the way, this happens in Lebanese homes all the time and in Arabic homes all the time, where they're so in love with their own language, where he says, you give me a word, any word, and I show you how the root of that word is in Greek, you know, that kind of a thing? Well, my dad does it all the time um, with, with Arabic. He talks about the strength uh, and the beauty of Arabic language. People don't realize English has a similar beauty. Because it's a different it's a hybrid language that draws from other languages as well, it has a richness to it that we often misunderstand. But the word integrity comes from the word from the words about but integrated, about being whole. When something is integrated, you take unities of diversities, you put them together, and it becomes a whole. It becomes a unified whole. And that's what ha- when something has structural integrity. You engineers who are here, you know what structural integrity is about. It's about the idea of being able to withstand something. It's whole, it's pure, it's bonded, it's strong, and it withstands the stresses around it. That is what it means to have integrity. Now, personal integrity as a human being isn't about strength of material. It's about strength of character, about strength of conviction, about strengthening the idea that all human beings, including yourself, are very, very valuable. But the problem is personal integrity is very hard to come by. You can manufacture structural integrity. You can't manufacture personal integrity. You can try your best. You can do some personal improvements. You can take the Tony Robbins courses and all these kind of things, and you'll approximate something that looks like personal integrity, but I think it's very, very difficult to come by because it's an innate characteristic that comes from outside of us, given human nature. I mean, Jesus makes a statement in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, when he says this, out of the heart come evil thoughts, adultery, theft, false testimony, slander, and murder. Out of all of our hearts come these things. If our hearts spit this out, how in the world are we supposed to manufacture with this defective heart? How are we going to manufacture personal integrity? And you see it all over the place. It's very hard to have, I'm going to say, a couple of areas where integrity. we need to have integrity and how hard it is and how difficult it is to have it in the three different areas. First is when we are in a position for personal gain. How hard it is to have integrity when we're in a position for personal gain. And each one of us has this at some point. You recall, of course, the Bernie Madoff story of years ago. It was the largest financial fraud in U.S. history where he bilked people out of $65 billion. Billion. In other words, $65 million was chump change compared to, for, for him. $65 billion. Now, it's interesting because after he was caught and after he was sent to prison and all this, there's this article I read where his wife lives in their penthouse in New York, and she called it a prison, the penthouse prison, because whenever she walked out, all the other rich people, who he had built, by the way, um, mm-hmm. among celebrities and other, other rich people, were in that same building, and she felt like she couldn't even walk the hallways for, for, because of the shame and the disgust that people would heap upon her. Just for being married to Bernie Madoff. And said, how could you not have known? How could you not have known? So she goes to visit Bernie in prison. And she says in one of her weakest, you know, most despondent moments, she says, Bernie, how could you do it? How could you do this? And his answer was fascinating because he basically said this. I knew it was wrong when I started, but when I started, it was small and it was one little decision after the other. It was a bunch of small frauds that led to the large, largest fraud in the world. In other words, he made little tiny sacrifices of his integrity for his personal gain, and all those little ones became mounted up over and over and over again until it became a mountain of fraud. And he lost who he was. He lost all sense of integrity, and it became the easiest thing in the world to keep it going in one sense, but a frantic race to keep the lies up, in another sense. And then he said this, I didn't have the courage to deal with it when I first started. And I certainly didn't have the courage to deal with it when it was a mountain. This is called the tyranny of little decisions, the tyranny of small decisions. We have this one in our weight loss plans, where we say, I'll have the cake today, but not tomorrow. And then you have the cake tomorrow. There's only been two cakes, two pieces of cake. Then you find out that you've had it every single day. And it's the tyranny of little decisions that prevent you from reaching your goals. Well, this happens integrity-wise as well. We have the tyranny of little decisions where we shred our integrity just a little bit every single day. We tell a little white lie. You know, we say something to make somebody feel good and all of a sudden we get the, we get the rush of being an encourager. We're like, oh, well, I told them a little white lie just to make them feel good because they needed a little bit of a boost today. See what you've done? You've murdered the truth in order to actually make somebody feel good. It might be well-intentioned, but the problem with that is is that now you get the sort of recept- the receptivity of being the kind of guy that people go to for encouragement and now you're telling all kinds of lies to encourage people. started off good and all of a sudden you're an exaggerator and all of a sudden before you know it you've told lies about yourself to make yourself look better because it's intoxicating. It's either monetary gain or it's personal gain in terms of prestige or some kind of social clout you might have, it's intoxicating. We have this in science as well. I think I may have shared this either last year or the year before this, but it's important, it bears repeating. There was a crisis in science a couple of years ago, and it's persisting, by the way, where they actually did a study of different scientific studies, where they studied, um, uh, and it was published in in, uh, Smithsonian Magazine, uh, where they took a look at the findings that were published as fact in our most prestigious academic science journals, like Nature and Science and all these things. And they found out that 40%, only 40%, less than half of those studies, the findings could be duplicated. Now, if you know how science works, one of the good good practices of science is you you, you establish your protocols and your experimentation in a way that it could be duplicated, because if it's a fluke, it's not really a fact, it could be a fluke, but if it can be duplicated and repeated over and over again, now you know if it's good science. What they found out was that none of that was being done. They weren't verifying any of this, and yet they were still publishing these things as groundbreaking facts in these scientific journals. And they were asking the question, why is this? Why are these people who... Whose goal it is is the pursuit of truth, being such, you know, engaging such shenanigans with the science themselves—either forging the data, or they're fudging their protocols, or they're hiding the fact that they didn't really have good protocols in the first place—and we're letting them get away with it. Why was that the case? And the reason is is because one, it's very difficult to actually um, uh, get funding for repeatability of your research. It's not sexy enough, but also we need to make headlines. And in the publishing and in academic world, if you don't publish groundbreaking studies, then you aren't going to have any kind of advancement whatsoever. And so integrity gets sacrificed for gain. But we also have it in our our own personal lives too. You know, our most sacred trusts. It's our family relationships or maybe our marriages. Think of what marriage actually is. I think about it sometimes when, when, when I'm looking at my wife and I think to myself, What have, this is going to sound bad, what have I done? What I mean is, like, um, what I mean is, what have I done? What have I actually done in engaging in this covenant with her? What have I done? You know what it is? When I think about those vows we gave to each other and being there on on, on the platform at the church, is basically, with all the flowery words, all you're really doing is you're saying to some person here, this is my entire life, this is my heart. I'm actually giving it to you with an open hand. I'm not doing this with it. I'm not gonna go like this, like here, you can have part of it. I'm offering it to you. Now you have the opportunity to take it and care, care for it and nourish it and caress it and do something to make it stronger or you can go squish like that or put it in your own pocket and say, now I get to carry this around. Look at this thing on my keychain. That's what you get a chance to do. And whenever you violate that sacred trust, And I'm not just about affairs, I'm talking about all kinds of violations of sacred trusts. What maybe, what affairs we have with our eyes, affairs we have with our hearts, when we engage in emotional attachments to other people, we suddenly feel something like, this person gets me. I wish my husband would get me. That's an emotional betrayal. Now it's very difficult to avoid that sometimes because human interaction is such that it entices us away even we're not looking for it, but that's my point. My point is the human heart is desperately wicked, who can know it? So the Bible specifically says, and even when we're engaged in innocent seeming behavior, we give ourselves away in little tiny decisions that, that mount up in the tyranny of little decisions that become something we are enslaved to later on. That's how difficult it becomes. It was William Danforth who said, lines of least resistance make for crooked rivers and for crooked men. We take the easy paths around, whether it's I need emotional fulfillment, I can find it here. I need a monetary gain, and I'll just do this little tiny lie. It's the easier thing to do, and we, we go this way, and maybe it'll help my career. I can do so much good later on if I advance in my position at the company, or whatever it might be. I'll advance, and then I'll be able to do much bigger and better things. So this little tiny thing that I might know in the back of my mind, is probably wrong or not exactly true to say, I'll sacrifice that a little bit. I'll take the path of least resistance so I can go up the ladder and actually make a big difference later. But lines of, of least resistance make for crooked rivers and for crooked men. Does it all the time. We sacrifice integrity when we have an opportunity for advancement. We also sacrifice integrity when we respond to authority. Now, I'm pointing all this out as sort of doom and gloomy, I realize this, but. Um, we sacrifice integrity when we respond to authority. I'm not going to go into great detail on this because time doesn't allow but Stanley Milgram did a study in the 1960s um, on authority. He wanted to study how people react to authority and do they actually do bad things. He was fascinated by the idea that the Nazis could have enlisted so many otherwise good people to do their bidding for them and become part of the party and so he had a set up experiment where he had um, people who were uh, came in and they said we're going to We're going to test some people. We're we're testing the effects of negative reinforcement on people's ability to recall information. So he said, what you're going to do is you're going to come into the the room. We're going to have a person, he's he's a test subject. He'll be behind a wall. So you'll sit at a desk. There's a wall in front of you. You can't see this person. They can't see you, but they're hooked up to electrodes. And so you're going to administer some questions. And when you ask them the question, you're going to, if they give a right answer, just let it go. If they give a a wrong answer, you're going to shock them small shock. But the more questions they get wrong, the more intense the shocks will become, and in fact when it gets into a red zone or a danger zone, we'll let you know. People are like, okay, so we'll pay you 15 bucks or whatever it is to do this. They're getting paid for being part of the experiment, so just come in and help us out. So they walk in and they do it. The, The reality was the person being experimented on wasn't the person being shocked. In fact, no one was being shocked. The person being experimented on was the test administrator. And so what would happen is, is there would be an authority figure in a white lab coat standing next to them and so the person would get a question wrong and they would shock the person. And at first it was like, ow! Then it was like, oh my goodness! Then it became like, you're killing me! Oh my goodness, you're, and are pounding on the wall. Please stop, please stop! And ordinarily when people heard the pain, they would stop. But the louder the person, the instructor would say, shock them, shock them, do it, you're being paid for this! 85% of the people who walked in there would have shocked someone until they killed them because they were being yelled at. 85%. Now, that ought to be a staggering statistic because everyone in this room is thinking, not me. Well, 85%. That means most of us would have done it. It was unethical to do that study, obviously, because most those people needed therapy afterwards because they realized it. I could kill someone. I could have become a Nazi. We sacrificed integrity when we respond to authority. We sacrifice integrity when we have authority. It was Lincoln who said this, if you want to test a man's character or test his integrity, don't give him adversity, give him power. That's how you test a man's integrity. But we also lose our integrity sometimes in hardship. And I want to sort of end on these notes here. When you look at Job chapter two, verse nine, and you see all the things that Job has gone through, all the tragedies and the hardships that Job has gone through. And you see what his wife says to him. It's so fascinating what she says to him. After all this, he says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold on to your integrity? Hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women who would speak. Should we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Do you still hold fast to your integrity amidst all the hardships? Curse God and die. And he says, this is foolish talk. we receive good but not also hardships from the Lord? He did not sin against the Lord in all this. So Job is a picture of the integrity because it does become very, very difficult to maintain your integrity when hardships come. Yes, when you're trying to have gain, it's very difficult to keep your integrity. When you have authority or when you respond to authority, it's very hard to keep your integrity. But one of the hardest places is, it's to keep your integrity is when it's hard to maintain who you are and maintain your beliefs. And it's becoming, because of the culture shifts, more and more difficult to maintain our beliefs. Becoming very difficult. I mean, I can tell you story upon story of people who either lost friends or lost jobs or have had be so difficult and uncomfortable in their positions uh, at their jobs just because they happen to have a coffee mug with scripture on it. It was very difficult, but I've painted a picture for you of how hard it is for the human heart to maintain its integrity, and you're thinking, well, how in the world are we supposed to do this? If all of us would succumb, how do we do this? I would tell you this. I think it comes right from God himself. You draw upon it this way. You draw upon the source of integrity, which is the Holy Spirit. When you look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. Everyone knows these, these, these passages once again. But I saw something that changed the way I view these passages. I saw something that changed the way I view these passages. Very familiar. I know how to be how to be brought low and how to abound, Paul says. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You've all heard that. You've, if you've watched Steph Curry, you know that this is his favorite passage of scripture. He talks about it all the time, the famous basketball player. I've seen athletes, after being congratulated for winning the gold medal, they say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. They say that stuff, and you're like, glory to God, fantastic. Look on national television. Someone said it on on, on TV. That's fantastic. And then, of course, we say it all the time when we're facing a hardship in our lives, when our marriage isn't doing so well, or maybe our academics aren't as strong as they should be, or we're facing a project at work where if it doesn't go well, I'm not sure... I'm going to be staying around here any longer, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can overcome this. And that's a good, and I think a fine interpretation and application of that passage. But I want to show you an image. Can we show this image? I think I have it in my slides. This image here. Do you remember that? It's hard to look at. This is a image, if you don't remember the story, of 21 Coptic Christians who were kidnapped by ISIS. That's the guy's. Standing behind them, and they were told to renounce their faith in Christ, or they would be executed and beheaded. You know what these men said on the video that made the rounds on YouTube? They said, Yah Yeshua! Yeshua! Yeshua is how you say Jesus in Arabic. They refused to renounce their faith, and all twenty-one of them lost their heads. These young men. You know, I think about these guys, and I think to myself, when they were standing on the shores, it was in Libya where they, where they were, I think. They were standing on the shores of the Mediterranean and they were about to lose and the knives began to touch their necks. Do they think about the childhoods they had? The carefree days where they were playing in the dusty streets of Cairo or Alexandria or wherever it was in Egypt they're from. When they look out on the distant shores and they think, where is my help coming from? I need it right now. This is where I need the help the most. I'm going to lose my life. I'm in my 20s for heaven's sake. This is not the life I envisioned for myself. Did they think all those thoughts? Could they have sacrificed their integrity and not held fast to it and cursed God and died at that moment? Could they have said, I don't mean it in my heart, but I'd say, I'm a Muslim and I would save me, but I don't mean it in my heart? And I can therefore use my life, the rest of my life, to preach the gospel to these same kind of people later on if I could just get out of the situation with a small, small lie. None of them did it. Not a one. Not a one. And I, you know, I read an article about executions that were happening in a, in a, in a country I won't talk about. I won't, I won't name right now, but it was executions that are happening, public executions that happen quite often in this. It's an Islamic country. And they interviewed the executioner. And they said, when you go go to get the the, um, the accused and the condemned, and you bring them out for the public execution by beheading, what happens? He says, you know what's interesting? No matter how hardened the criminal, they all stand up to face their death, and they all fall to their knees. Their, their, Their legs melt. He says, their strength, he literally quotes, he says, their strength drains away. All of them, their strength drains away. None of these men had strength that faded away. It didn't drain because they had a firm conviction that they could hold on to their integrity, not because of their own strength, but because of the one who gives them strength. So when I read, I can do all things through him who gives me strength, I don't read it just in terms of, if I did this, if he gives me strength, I'll make it on top. If it gives me strength, I'll pass that exam. If it gives me strength, I'll get that promotion. If it gives me strength, I'll save my marriage. If it gives me strength, I can bring my kids back to the Lord. All those things mean that's what it means. Yes. But we usually use it in our Christian terms in a way that say if I do this, it will all turn out well. These men died. Here's the punchline. Now, I want to look, you look at that, that picture. Can we go back to the picture again? It's one thing I want to point out to you. Who do you notice first? The guys on their knees. The guys, this is, and I, this is funny because the Lord, it's funny in a strange way. I don't mean funny, there's humor, nothing humorous about this. Those men are robed in brightness. And they are on their knees behind cowards who are literally robed in darkness. The darkness did not overcome. ISIS is failing, but those men are heroes. Those men's integrity lasts. Their message is proven over and over again because they had the integrity Sit, to, to hold onto their faith and stand fast to their integrity in the middle of a very trying circumstance, can we do it? Can you and I do it? Can you and I do it in very trying times? You know, we are trying our best, and we ought to do this in in the law. We try to legislate good law, but law is being hap- happening now where it's not so great and we're trying to rely on our lawmakers, or our presidents, or our judicial appointments, and say, this will save America, this will save each one of us, it will all save us. I got news for you, friends. The Republican Party doesn't save you. The Democratic Party doesn't save you. The president can't save you. We can all try our best to approximate morality and integrity on this earth. But the problem is if you're relying on politics or you're relying on the good nature of human beings or the government for heaven's sake, you're going to have a very serious disappointment because the problem is human beings are not morally out of shape. We are defective. We have a heart defect. And if, I have a, a friend who's in fitness And he says this, you can't out-train a bad diet. Well, I'm telling you this right now, you can't out-legislate the human heart. You can try, but you have to draw your strength from a savior who's not us. We need someone who's not us to save us from us. And you can draw on that integrity over and over again and really see the beauty of it all. But it's a very difficult life to live as a Christian and you draw your strength from Christ. So we return back once again to the story of that lighthouse and the the ships. Now, the story is funny because sort of the little guy standing up to the big guy, you know, the lone lighthouse keeper saying, hey, man, I got the whole entirety of North America behind me on this, and you're just a bunch of ships. Yeah, you got guns, but so what? I can defy you. Here's the funny thing about lighthouses. Lighthouses are not meant to defy ships. Lighthouses are meant to guide ships even ships that refuse to believe that they, can, that they actually can crash against the shores and be dashed against the rocks. So the question I have for me and for you, will we draw upon Christ who gives us strength to hold fast to an integrity so you can take the arguments in favor of the sanctity of human life You can take what the Bible says in difficult passages and express them in a way that is winsome and beautiful and explanatory. You can look at human sexuality and gender and the struggles people actually have with it, and you can be a light that guides them to safety as opposed to a defying force. Which one do you want to be? Apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith, is not about winning an argument. It's not about changing someone's mind. It's about being an instrument that God uses to change a heart. Because integrity is the currency of truth. Human integrity is the currency of truth. And in trying times, you have to have the courage to be able to stand up with integrity. So integrity is the currency of truth, and courage is truth's backbone. Let's pray. Father, I'm just grateful that um, there's a receptivity here at this church, and the leadership is so invested in transforming the community, the hearts and the minds, whether it's DBI, where we engage the mind, or it's HELPS at Macomb, uh, uh, the, the transformation that's happening in Macomb through the churches that are gathered together and praying for those in, uh, in leadership and also reaching out to the community, and for the people here who care about integrity. I May mean, we all look not to just see the flaws and in integrity in somebody else, but look to ourselves and say, how can I make a difference? How can I become a source of hope that people want to ask about the answers and the reasons for the hope that I have. How can we be that person? How can we change the world? How can we be robed in brightness even when darkness surrounds us? Lord, strengthen us to be able to hold fast to our integrity, to not curse you or forsake you or whatever it might be. Lord, when John Piper said that statement where he said what the world is looking to see, what the world is hoping for is some crazy sacrifice, something radical, something salty and bright, Lord, he went on to say that it is not the case that people who stand up to oppression or stand up to the blasé or whatever it might be in the world are, are scorned. They're not scorned at all. They're not even uh, ignored, Lord. They are killed. Stephen was killed because his face sounded like an angel in the middle of oppression. Paul was one of the ones who approved of his death, yet because of Stephen standing up for the truth and his willingness to sacrifice his life for it, Paul became the Apostle Paul. From Saul to the Apostle Paul, he was not bored by Stephen's words or his sacrifice. He was transformed on a long road that led him there, but he became transformed, Lord, and his sacrifice was not in vain. We know this, Lord. May we be the people who offer hope in a positive way, but may we also be people who have a voice in trying times. Let us hold fast to our integrity and speak truth to a world that desperately needs it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.